0: Hey, and welcome back to a new episode of In Her Lens. My name is Nadine Rumer, and in this podcast, I interview today's female filmmakers about their journeys, experiences, and work. Leticia de Portoli is a Brazilian writer, director, and cinematographer. She is the creator of Queering, a comedy web series streaming on YouTube. The series consists of two seasons and has over six million views. Queering created exceptional buzz, and I am thrilled to chat with Leticia about how it came to be. In this episode, we talk about holding different responsibilities from being a DP to writing to directing. We discuss the making of independent web series and the creation of Queering itself, generational gaps and building a reliable team. And we also talk about LGBTQ plus cinema today and Leticia's hopes and goals for the future. So without further ado, here is Leticia on In Her Lens. I'm so excited that you're here. So let's just, I'm already recording. So welcome okay, to In Her Lens. I'm so happy that you're here and that after all this time that we're making it happen also during the time that it's in. Introduce yourself a little bit to us and then we'll get into it.
1: Yes, of course. Well, first, thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here and to have this conversation with you about films. And I'm excited that uh, the work that you watched over a year ago at South by Southwest kept me in your mind somehow that I'm here talking to you today. So that's always uh, exciting. So my name is Leticia. I'm a Brazilian filmmaker that have been living for the past seven years, seven years here in the U.S. Trying to make uh, narrative fiction and all types of work, and um, you know, failing a lot and sometimes doing some good stuff.
0: <laughs> as it as it should be, right? It, yes, that's, I feel that like is that's the, the, the only way to do it. <laughs> um, so, what is the most recent film that you've watched? Oh, the most recent film that I watched was Cajillionaire. Let's just immediately get into it because I've only seen teaser trailers and the trailer. I haven't actually seen it yet. It's so good. I loved it. There is well a
1: lot of the times films are either recommended to me or I get hear about a movie specifically if it has a queer storyline, even if it's something in the movie or a character. So that's how I got into this movie. But of course I was interested in the the style and the work and the movie is amazing it's so unique the style the editing and the camera movement it's amazing the it looks very the aesthetic is very unique but very purposeful and Mm -hmm. it makes sense of the story is a bit absurdist but somehow feels really real and intimate i love when filmmakers are able to combine very contrasting feelings or ideas and make them coexist really realistically in these universes and this movie definitely does that and i love them
0: that's so exciting that's a great recommendation too very timely and yes it's definitely weird but in a good way tell us a bit about your childhood where you grew up um what did your parents do so i grew up in brazil so
1: i lived there until i was about 25 and i was raised and lived most of my life in a small rural-ish town very Catholic and the south of Brazil. Uh, my mom was a teacher that never really taught because she doesn't like kids very much. And she worked at an administration at a school to this day. Uh, and my father had a small business at the time. So wasn't particularly a creative or a household of creative. And it was kind of a messy and turbulent household overall, but they both really loved movies and watched a lot of movies. And just for context, in South America, especially in the 90s, kids don't really have a say and they don't rule the households or the TV. So we would always watch the movies that they want. There were movies for adults and they would just let me hang around. So I never really watched cartoons or kid-themed movies. I would always, I remember being really young, of six or seven and watching Dolores Claiborne with my mom, or Basic Instinct, or Indecent hours. Proposal, this very, like, inappropriate movies for, for a kid, but I loved it. I became so um, fascinated. I didn't like to watch kids' movies from those from that time on. I would always go for these dark dramas or movies thing for adults, and I think that part of their Uh, life, even though they were not necessarily creative, really made me fascinated, obsessed with movies. I would watch movies all the time. I would skip school if there was a deal in the video store that day because I could get four movies for the price of two and try to watch it. And to me, it was very fascinating. It was like a tool to understand the world that was way bigger than my tiny town and the people that were there and just explore new things, new ideas overall. Do you remember any movies very distinctively from the Dolores Claiborne. I feel like I remember being the first movie I kind of got it, even though it wasn't, like, very dark. It's with Kathy Bates, and she's this— um, has this really strange relationship with her daughter. She murders her husband. It's really dark overall, the plot. But I remember being like, wow! I totally got this movie. This is so interesting. And um, definitely dark. And I never really value my mom's movie taste. And now when I look back, I'm like, yes, this was kind of weird, but it was good. It's good taste. taste. At least yeah.
0: Taste. Yeah. 100%. When did the transition come for you that you noticed that this was something that you could make into a career? That I
1: think, um, I actually, I... Went into the career with the idea of, I love movies so much, so I should be a filmmaker. Which, I think it's not a good plan, and it's not a good reason to be a filmmaker. That was my mentality. Why not? I think it's just not, it's a good start, for sure, but it's just not enough. It's like saying, I love eating, so I sh- should be a chef. You should have to take, because I think when I started, I had this really, well, a person that was raised by movies, like myself, sometimes can have this very this fantasy in their head, this editing of how things are going to go, especially as you're younger and more naive. So I think I have this sense that it was going to be very easy. I was going to get to film school. The hardest part would be to pay film school. But other than that, I would learn some stuff, start making movies. I love movies, so my movies will be great. I watch so many movies, right? I'm going to make some movies, immediately getting some awards, immediately will get some recognition and, you know, have a really big career and make really good movies. Mm -hmm. And I think when I first started to learn the skill, I was like, this is really hard. And there's a lot that goes into this. And it takes a really good time, a really good amount of time to start even understanding what the job is. It's Mm -hmm. just really complex. It was way more complex than I anticipated because I think as a viewer, which is a good thing, you just sit there and you experience And you think, wow, this is amazing. I mean, out of thin air, I felt all these emotions and I have all these questions in my head and all these things appear and it feels so magical and kind of easy. And I I think I took that experience and thought that would be my experience as a filmmaker. Making it, right. Yeah.
0: But it's funny because that is what it's, you know, meant to make you feel. It's meant to look easy. It's not meant Mm -hmm. to look like this difficult thing and it's meant to represent life, but it is extremely complex building your career alongside of just the actual making of film you know it's a dual thing it's and hard to find your footing in the world and it's hard to like actually do the work you know yes i think it takes a lot
1: um out of you in many ways there's the technical aspect of it which is really hard but also um i think the more you get into the actual Job and the skills uh, you understand, and you start valuing. I start valuing movies a lot more because you understand how hard it is to even create a scene and moments and all the details that make that thing that is not real mm-hmm. out of thin air, and it becomes really deep and emotional, and people get so involved with it. And it's really, really hard, and it takes a lot out of a lot of people, not only the the filmmaker, right. but it's just a really hard job. So we. It took me a while to understand that. I think in the beginning, even when I was in school or learning, I had this fantasy that it was going to be easy, that I had the drive. I was going to do everything to get making movies. I made my first feature length movie, a lot of quotes on that. It was just, the length was right. That's all. Right. Uh, When I was (laughs) 23 and I thought this was a great achievement, right? Because I was moving really fast and I thought that was the the idea. You make a ton of movies and it's going to work. And I... You had to stop. I think in the beginning, I I really wanted to be a filmmaker. I didn't want to make films. I didn't really stop to really understand mm-hmm. why do I even want to make films or what what's it bothering me or what's inside my head that I think it should become a story and why. So it was a really big learning curve and a maturing process overall for me. In the beginning, I have mm-hmm. a really naive understanding of what this was. It was more about, I, I feel like the job of being a filmmaker here was very it was a defining thing to me as a human. I was
0: right. a filmmaker. You were that, right. Yeah. And then right.
1: at some point, and it took a long time, it wasn't an overnight I woke up and finally I understood that this was a job that I wanted to do because of who I was and my experiences, all that. Mm-hmm. So that was a turning point when I actually started to make things that were at least meaningful to me. It's a it's a better way to try to make something meaningful
0: to someone else to start with being meaningful to you. So you grew up in Southern Brazil, you went to the Latin American Film Institute Mm -hmm. and then you came to America or the United States. So those are, I mean, two very big life transitions. So how was that going to film school and what was your experience of film school?
1: Film school was, to me, um, it was exhausting, but it was amazing because it was I really wanted that. I really wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I was where I wanted to be. I stopped everything else in life to focus on just that, mm-hmm. which today I again think is a mistake because if you don't live life, how can you talk about life in movies? I guess I had, and a lot of people in my school, uh, teachers and instructors kind of had this mindset that you have to live it breathe and just do this and, and you're going to be, become good at it which, again, I believe a lot in studying and sharpening your craft as much as you can. But the nuance of emotional depth and things that you put in a movie, they come from life. And if you don't experience life, you're probably not going to be able to get that put that together. Mm -hmm. So it was a really good experience. I met a lot of great people that I still work with and I still partner with to this day. My director of photography of queering was a teacher of my back when I was in film school in Brazil then. So the people and the networking, it was the most valuable part of it. And just being on set definitely always felt amazing. It was uh, the right place to be. I guess I wasn't there for the right reason back then, but still in the right place.
0: Mm -hmm. And how is it getting an education in Brazil and bringing that knowledge to the United States? Did you feel like there was a big difference between the two worlds?
1: Absolutely. There is a huge gap On the industry itself, there's a huge gap between Brazil and the U.S. The amount of movies that are made in Brazil is very, very small compared to what's made here. A very long time, I had data of maybe Brazil would make about 100 feature films a year, while here it's thousands and thousands. So it's a very huge gap. This data might be outdated, but still is a really big Comparatively, right. Yeah. So in in Brazil, soap operas are really big. So all the money and the investments go in soap operas. The most famous actress I'm soap operas and the big place to be but it's a very different language than filmmaking and Mm -hmm. it's not it wasn't what I was looking for um artistically or career wise so it definitely felt like I could find more uh in another country I spent some time in Argentina as well and studying screenwriting there and that was already so different than Brazil I think it's very interesting to me how when you change the cultural background and the country the whole the relationship with filmmaking and how people tell stories changed so drastically. Yeah. Some things stay very similar. I think they approach or what's important to tell into a scene, what's the, so uh, that was very interesting to experience in other countries. So I was then really um, excited to try to come here because of course my entire base of reference, it was 90% American movies. It was what my parents were watching when I was a little kid. A lot of the stuff that I watched came from here so I first came here as an outpair, actually. Ah, okay. And while I was doing that, I started in classes at Emerson in Boston, screenwriting. And that was kind of the segue to start doing more classes and getting some freelance work. I think the biggest difference, to actually answer your question, uh, it was the technical parts of it. I think um, sound, sound mixing, cinematography, all these things. Brazil is way behind in terms of even the equipment that people get access to, when, you know, the top-notch camera that you can rent here easily online, it would be really hard to get in Brazil, you would have to be in a big production and just be a really famous DP to be able to request something like that. Mm-hmm. So I definitely learned how to work on a film set here, because the the strictness of it, the structure and all these things are very different. And in Brazil, it's really hard to have access to a professional set because there are not many happening. There's not many opportunity. To me, it was a really good transition in terms of opportunity for learning more and having more exposure to the actual industry. Right. But, um, of course, the language barrier is still real to this day. Even though I'm here for seven years, there's always, especially when you're trying to talk about, uh, metaphors and aesthetic things and all that, it's always that sensation of like, if I could only explain this in Portuguese you would right. sound great. <laughs> Completely,
0: because it's like every language gives a very different, it can use very different words and there's certain colors and feelings that are kind of unexpressible unless you speak the language, right? So it's always dancing on that fine line. Like as a bilingual person myself, I have the exact same experience. So it definitely, it does, it does bring a, a new complex level, but I think it also gives a lot to the type of work that you do, right? Because eventually it kind of encapsulates everything that you are. Apart from your just love for movies, what do you think, where do you think your attraction for visual storytelling specifically comes from and what attracts you to it?
1: Specifically cinematography and all the technical aspects of filmmaking. Uh, to me, it started with, okay, I also need to make money. Mm-hmm. I need to pay rent and I need to have, well, it's really hard to have a fix income or freelance jobs as a director if you already haven't made something that was a or even then at or something like that it's really hard to have steady income if you need that so uh, cinematography allowed me to get jobs all the time freelance gigs do, do not stop on that area and I it helped me a lot to be on set as a director to actually learn the language to speak with dps and i learned from the dps i work with all the time to then do that when i was working myself but um it was good to have this i feel like with writing and directing my desire to do that and everything comes always from really deeply personal places so sometimes it creates almost like a Inbalance or toxic relationship with a part of it because the work is so intrinsically connected with personal parts of me. And with cinematography, it was not like that at all, which was amazing. It was just like this is a hard skill and I'm going to be good at it and I'm going to come into a place and light a scene really well and make someone look good and
0: press the button and move on. Different part of your of your creative brain as well like it yes it is you are responsible for kind of holding on to the visual overview of something right and and keeping that connection with the director but it, it is also like a physical thing. Yeah it's
1: a type of creative that I I love it because you can see it you can compose and you can look at right then and you can adjust and you can communicate mm-hmm. back and forth. I feel like with writing, writing so lonely, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you yeah. sit and you read it again and again and you're like, does this even make sense now? And cinematography because it's more collaborative and quick, like you can quickly adjust and rewatch everything. I don't know. It's, it has a, it was kind of a breath of fresh air for me too. And he helped me with everything else. As a writer, I can write way more concisely and understand into a composition of a frame, what's the important little piece. I kind of start thinking about that writing to instead of doing an extensive description. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, it's about this one thing. And then leave the rest to the rest of the crew to think about. Uh, So then definitely help with the other areas, but it was, it's always, to me, it was the, I don't want to say the easiest job because it's a really hard job, but for me personally, it was the one that had the smallest, Uh, emotional load attached
0: to it. Do you think there are distinctive qualities to your work now because of your experience in cinematography and do you think you have specific qualities that you bring to the way that you work?
1: I think as a DP I always like to operate camera and that's the part of it that I feel more at home when I'm doing. If I'm working as a DP in a project I will try to have handheld Uh, camera that follow characters or follow the narratives as much as possible It's something that I really like and I think you can really Almost it's almost like you're another actor on the scene when you're doing that and you have Mm -hmm. that really fluid camera that goes with what's happening So that's something that I love do to do and the more you do it You get better at it and you can get the movement to work really well so I I like the challenge of that part a little bit overall as I think still in the cinematography part of it, there is so much to learn. And it's like even lighting alone is so complex and you're gonna, there's so many people that will meet different gaffers, people with decades of experience that really know so many ways to interpret and use light. So I feel like there's so much to learn. It's never, it's an area that has endless endless possibilities. So the more you meet people, you will always learn something different and work with new DPs. you learn learn a little, something here and there that they do. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I absolutely love about it. This constant openness to do things in a different way for that project. So flexibility is something that you learn a lot when you're working in cinematography because you're not working for or you shouldn't be working for your aesthetic. You should be working for the project and for the better for the what's best for that story. Mm -hmm. And I think on the rest of it as a director or as a writer, knowing more about the visual part of storytelling or composition or how to use a progression from a shot to another and what that will cause and thinking very almost mathematically about it it really helps me uh i can't i can't explain exactly how but it helps me a lot because sometimes you just have so much in your head when you're trying to see the big picture or in the acting and you're thinking about the full scene. And I think thinking about the cinematography or the shots on this more, what's the shot that you're going to see and what comes next, it helps me center and focus on the other areas too. So if I'm writing a line, I'm like, okay, so what exactly is happening here? What would I be Mm -hmm. seeing on the screen right now? Mm -hmm. And that really helps me because it's different than thinking it's a coffee shop. And then you're like, okay, what am I going to, and when you were thinking as a DP, you're like, okay, so the camera is here and I see this and this is what's happening. And that that really
0: helps to me just be more assertive with mm-hmm. the, the work overall. Like you were saying, it is the specificity and, and not taking on, like the, seeing the whole thing, right? The coffee shop, there's so much that can happen in the coffee shop. So what parts are you actually seeing and why are you seeing what you're seeing? So before we dive into querying, I just want to talk a bit about just your style and kind of how it's developed and the kind of stories that you like to tell and how you kind of are navigating talking about what you do.
1: I started with no really real sense of what is my style or my voice. It was just this big rush to be making films. So mm-hmm. I think when I started to stop a little bit and try to understand what do I really want to talk about, it wasn't necessarily a genre or or something at specific on the the aesthetic of the filmmaking. I'm really flexible with the look and the feel of a project or the genre. Mm -hmm. I just have to be writing or involved in a project of something that I'm personally kind of obsessed about thinking about it. So to me, gender roles, Sexes, patriarchy all these things are always in my head i have an interaction on in the supermarket and i was like this was clearly a case of this and that and that yeah, so yeah. i like to peel off small little moments that happen in my life mm-hmm. like okay this interaction actually meant and then there's this essay about what happened there so then i i've learned that this is the movies that i should be making because i am clearly obsessed about these topics and i want to investigate so deeply and try to understand why people are doing a b and c and how that plays along and the nuance i guess that's to me the most attractive part of writing and filmmaking it's just discover these really big truths and little nuances or moments and conversations because that's most things happen like that in life i feel like Yeah, yeah so i think a lot of the attempt at least on the style and the work is to have this really big complex conversations in a simple way or or put it out in nuance of simple moments and not like big
0: pivotal monologues or something like that right little moment and I think queering does that so well so let's just dive straight into it because sure. it's 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 awesome I saw it like you said a, a year ago over a year ago now at uh, South by Southwest everyone can watch it on YouTube it's yes. out there know it'll be linked and I'll play a little little bit before <laughs> we talk about it now on the pod but um, give us a little rundown just from from your perspective
1: yeah so queering is just the story of a woman on her late 50s coming out of as a bisexual to her daughter, who's a lesbian, and living in New York and dealing with her own personal and dating life. And that causes a lot of conflict between them. And that's where Kareem starts. I came out. I'm
0: bisexual. You've got to stop feeding into this illusion of hers. Don't you get it? She's just running away from her boring life. Do you always make a joke when people hit on you? Not good
1: ones. Not to masturbate in two hours. You should use the word, not try to erase us. I just want you to understand that
0: you're not bisexual. It, it's just, it's rude.
1: Why do they keep asking me about unicorns? So it came from a lot of places. I think the main poll to the story for me is that as I grew older and became more of an adult, my relationship with my mother and I have six aunts and all of these women changed a lot because it was just very interesting to me to think about in, in their case, in my case, the, those two generations have such a gap in how we experience the world. Because I have so much more freedom and agency and possibilities that they ever dream about having. And if they were to have, it would be on their 50s or 60s. And they would have to go about a lot of things to change their life, right? Because it's pretty set on stone some ways. If They're married, or what if they didn't want to? Or if they didn't want kids? It's just thinking about those differences when I with them now as an adult, it was something that I was constantly thinking about it and feeling almost I don't know, is it is it
0: upsetting in some way to them to just see like, wow, look at my niece. So I saw my grandmother this this um this summer and it was so strange to talk about the fact that like for her it also wasn't normal to wear jeans. They just didn't wear pants, they just wore skirts. Yeah. You know, and that's and we're sitting across from each other, just so normalized that I'm wearing jeans. I know. It's it, It's so fascinating to
1: me because for women specifically, the generational uh, changes are right there in your face. It's not like 200 years past. Lot, of course, a lot changed in 200 years. But I'm just saying from my mom to me, from 30-year gap, yeah, it's a whole different world. And it's specifically those two generations, I think, has the most starking changes mm-hmm. and uh that always interested me a lot and as I thought more about that it just really changed my view on them or my mother I could look at a lot of things that they did or said or that experience in the past there were a lot more compassion and a lot more like this mm-hmm. sucked for you right and and now here we are and also seeing them kind of taking a little sip of the freedom that they can have Trying to explore mm-hmm. it's um it's super endearing to me it's uh because they have this naiveness and this fear of doing certain things from the smoking weed or or mm-hmm. things like that, and that to me is where the story first started because i I was like I wanna see this, I want to see this generational cross and this like women at that age range, trying to experience their freedom or this feeling of liberation
0: somehow. Yeah, because there's a huge part in, um, I think, season two where uh, Val, the mother character, goes to her friend's house, right, for a Saturday lunch or she wants to drop by. She's not really in contact with her friends after, more, uh, after coming out. And the friends are like, no, and it's very distant. Whereas then you see the daughter with all her friends in the same, there's no a barrier put up but suddenly there's this barrier that the mom has to reckon with and then seeing her daughter with her friends just not in that barrier not existing i think it's such a moment where you're like oh yeah these two women who are you know were one raised the other they're super close they live together but they have very different experiences
1: yeah and even being a late bloomer as a person coming out is i feel like it's a very common thing for that generation too because it was barely impossible to come out uh, i that's also a thought that i would always have i was like it was so hard for me to mm-hmm. be queer and our town our like the the i mean it was not hard it was not i didn't know i was that because i didn't know that existed had to watch in a movie mm-hmm. and um so I kept thinking, wow, well, if they were queer, my aunt or my mom, it would be a nightmare. Because mm-hmm. when would they come out? When they are 40 or 50, because that's when they would hear about it too. Mm-hmm. So that experience, I also find it really interesting because people feel, I think people experience a lot of guilt, even about not doing it sooner, how much do they miss, and then experiencing potentially falling in love or experience romantic feelings for the first time when you were a full adult. It's kind of an experience on its own. Yeah, uh, definitely. So I thought all of that, I thought if I could put all of that on the same place mm-hmm. in a way that's kind of simple and kind of fun, maybe it will work out. But that was the initial plan with Query to kind of talk about a few of those things.
0: What are the realities that come with creating an independent web series? <sighs> it is know, hard. It's hard. Yes, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, the reality that come with it is it is really hard you are going to lose money very likely you're not going to make money out of that project specifically forget about that part you're gonna sacrifice a lot but another part of it is that you're really going to connect with people that are very passionate and very dedicated to the project and you are going to see people embracing your idea with no it's in a commitment that are like this is unreal because if you are not making money if this becomes a thing, if this goes to South by Southwest, I'm going. It's not my costume designer who's going. And it doesn't matter. She's here, fully engaged with the project. And I think with querying, a lot of our crew were Brazilians or from other countries. I Something happened, and I was just absurdly lucky to get all these people that were very experienced, way more experienced than me, and that really bought into the project and kind of created this, emotional bond with it so when we came back for season two it was like summer camp everybody was so happy to be back together and i'm like i can't believe people are here so happy (laughs) to work a 14 hour day shift without making no money and have really shitty cater and they are super happy we are all Mm -hmm. like so that part is a really good reality of the independent filmmaking
0: Oh, I think it's also a testament to how you are as a leader then, right? Because if this is, you're the executive producer, you're the writer, you directed it, um, it's created by you. So if people are showing up with that much love, you must be doing something right. I hope, or I'm just (laughs) lucky. Do you think that, I think this is so interesting because as a person, as an international person, not that I don't work with Americans at all, but I do find myself working in very international uh, groups of people or people that um are from somewhere else. It's funny that you mentioned this. Do you think there's a reason why you tend to work with and Brazilians but also just people who are not from New York?
1: I think we find each other because we are not in our homes and we are not on the most comfortable place for us, even with the language barriers and everything. I think in our set, for example, for querying, we probably had one crew member that was American on second season, so nobody felt self-conscious about language barriers because we all have barriers but we had no problem communicating we created the thing and it worked everybody could say what they had to say Mm -hmm. it is harder to start work i think filmmaking can be very clicky and the higher up you go the more it is of like this is the group and they're locked down and it's really hard to connect with new people and there's also the part of it To be fair, right, when a director works with a DP that they love, they always want to work with that same person because they almost feel insecure to work with someone new. Mm -hmm. And um, so it is naturally hard to to, uh, get involved with new groups of people and find new people to work with. And then I think the language barrier does play a role in it because even from the most basic, like from a video interview or a phone interview getting to a project, you can't be as funny or <laughs> as smart <laughs> that you would in your first language and maybe that it's something that doesn't doesn't help overall when you're against someone that speaks the language mm-hmm. so filmmaking is so much about communication right i think at least so if it feels like you're going to have trouble communicating i think people might have a step back mm-hmm. so i would then think that everybody who's a foreigner in any
0: way or form feel very comfortable with each other Let's talk a bit about the joys and the challenges of working and shooting in New York City, because there's a lot of happening and there's rules, but there's also like no rules. So how was, how has that been? Because queering takes place in New York uh, for both seasons.
1: I love shooting in New York because I love the natural color palette of the city, the, the textures of the city. The city has so much to offer. If you go out and walk a few blocks, you're going to find the perfect spot for the perfect shot. And it's going to look really good. Mm-hmm. So the city offers a lot on um, locations too. I just, I, I like the, the beauty of the city itself. It really helps tell you stories in a variety of stories. You can go from a mafia thing, from a love story on the exact same spot if you change the time of day. Yeah, so it's just, it's almost like a huge sound stage made into a city because there's yeah. a lot of opportunities for, for beautiful filmmaking now it's really loud <laughs> always so for sound you know you're just gonna have to redo things a lot and it's of course i guess when you have more money in a bigger structure you can buy yourself out of these situations but in independent filmmaking we had a lot of challenges with sound on season two specifically but season one two there's a scene that we shot in a park in brooklyn and they are sitting uh val and harper talking on a bench in a park so we picked the bench we want when we were scouting we're good to go and we get there uh there was a bunch a crew of older gentlemen playing this dominoes game really loudly and we are like what are we going to do? We're into filmmaking. So myself and our my makeup artist and first is you we went to a bakery, got a bunch of muffins, and went to them and asked them, could you guys move? And they did. So you get into these situations of a lot of asking for favors and counting with luck. Mm-hmm. And that's true for independent filmmaking as a whole. But I think in New York, it's very likely that you're going to encounter very strange situations that you're like wow I can't believe this is happening right now so you just have to be flexible and calm stay calm
0: (laughs) how has um queering grown from season one to season two when you wrote season one did you write it in mind with I'm gonna have a season two or how did that what is the timeline on that and how was that experience for you
1: season one i wrote so i started queering as a short film i first thought this could be a feature film the idea of i have these three characters and the story of this woman comes out of bisexual experience the whole experience of coming out this is my film and at the end it comes to a resolve Mm -hmm. whatever that is uh so at that time i started to watch more and more web series because there's a huge thing about people making queer web series right because queer content does not ever make very much to mainstream outlets, so I think people started taking YouTube and making more and more queer content, so I was like, okay, this is an opportunity to actually, I don't know if it's a frustration, but just, I would never have that experience of actually be able to make something and just put in front of the audience, and that's it. Mm -hmm. No, like, you know, there's been plenty of festivals, and you have seven people in the audience, and two of them don't even know how they end up in that room sometimes. So you you don't really have that real Mm. experience of what is the audience thinking of this, but you don't have that final piece of the puzzle ever sometimes with shorts and things like that. Of course festivals have great parts of it, but you just, I think if you don't go with a big movie and a big festival, you don't experience that. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, this might be a good opportunity to just, I think I wrote Queering and we made Queering very detached of any result. Nobody had any hopes and dreams of nothing. We were loving the process. We were excited about the script and that was it. So once it was done, uh, the first season, so I wrote as a short film and decided to break it up
0: as uh, episodics. Yeah, it's five episodes. Yeah, and
1: they are short. I think overall the first season goes for maybe 40 or 50 minutes I, I don't remember so it was about 50 pages at the end so it was good i could put more than i would in a short film mm-hmm. and and break them off but the narrative on the first season i think is pretty much moves as a feature where you have a main character supporting two supporting characters and maybe some other things here and there but you follow that one narrative yeah uh, so we shot during four days the first season and I edited the first round on that weekend, and then we started doing post-production. Within a week or two, we were done. And I put the episodes up, uh, created a channel on that week. We had 100 people, or not even that, subscribed, like people that we knew. And that was it. I went went to bed and didn't think more about it. I thought this was the end of it. It's out there. And then it starts to spiral and spike on views really quickly right on that first week. So the first week has 250,000 views. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And comments and people were really interested. So that was what prompted me to make a second season. I had mm-hmm. no plans to do it. It was really, that was it. That was the project. Maybe from here we can try to make the feature film. Maybe we can try something else. But then when I had the more... Close contact with the audience. You, you really made me want to do it for them, so they could have yeah. more of it. Because they yeah. were so. I got so many like emails, uh, things sent to my house. People, a lot of uh, late bloomer women in their 40s mm-hmm. and their 50s, being like, I've never seen a character of their age having a romantic interest or things like that. I mm-hmm. had thousands of people popping on my Instagram just to follow up and know more about querying and ask questions. So. That was the, the thing that changed their approach, I think. Because then on season two, which is not something that I'm so well-versed on, I tried to write more as a TV structure. And I brought more characters and more plots that live independently and are not necessarily connected. So then you have Devon's family and then you have mm-hmm. the Harper's relationship and all its plots living on its own, which was messier for me as a writer it's not something that I usually do. I always wrote in either short film or feature film format of that, like one single narrative that drives the whole thing. And then when I try to make that split or that TV uh, split, so we could have more representation and more stories or more of the characters that everybody loved. Uh, it was definitely a bigger challenge writing wise for me. And it took me a lot longer to be happy with the script i think the first season it came very fluid and i was happy with it and we Mm -hmm. shot and all that so that's what happened second season we also shot in five days but we had a lot more locations and more characters and less money so it was pretty intense Mm -hmm. Um, but it was really good because everybody had worked together and already had a good flow so we're able to, to make it work
0: yeah i mean that's what i also found so um Exciting when I was looking into querying was all the comments on the YouTube and the amount of subscribers you have I mean you have so it's I, I think it's like 61k you're pretty high up there and I mean you have almost a million views Um on one of the episodes. I think overall you're in the like 5 million views on it Um, which I think you really hit this community that was really looking for this story and that I think is really super exciting has the c- community growth and the community support allowed for it, for querying to then further be developed? Or is it still something that's still very much in your hands?
1: Yes, definitely. Because even for season two, we crowdfunded part of the money we used. So about uh, $10,000 came from the people that watch and supported querying and wanted to have another season. Mm-hmm. And even, I think, from the most, if we go, if we were to go into a festival People then go on the festivals page and like and say, yes, querying is on this festival. They always have the support of uh, trying to support querying where queering was. And there's a lot of, they start on the comments, Netflix uh, by queering, or they try to support as they can with the, the type of stuff. And it definitely really helps and in a way, in a more uh, business-like c- concrete way, you can have a real... Proof of concept. You have the story, the story was out, was exposed to the audience, being made very independently and not with all the structure that you could have. But it's here. They can see that people are watching the full episode. They're not dropping out the average view rate. You can see all these things and kind of build a case for yes, people like this and they will watch it. Mm -hmm. Now, did that help us get a deal? Uh, with a big mainstream network or anything. Not yet. Uh, But I think it definitely helps to do have a a good case study. Even South by Southwest, for example, when the first episode went, it was already on YouTube with over a million views. And they normally don't play anything that is not premiering there. Mm -hmm. And it was, they did. So that was great to be there and have conversations about it, having this, proof of concept of this is already out there you can watch the whole thing and you can see how people react to it you can see the comments there was no money no marketing money no nothing it was fully organic so it definitely helps and i think overall as a filmmaker it just helps being able to see how people perceive your your work because when you're doing small stuff you rarely have that opportunity so that part of youtube i really like because you really got me to have one-on-one conversations with the people that were watching query and they're the most honest feedbackers because they have no stakes on this. They don't Mm -hmm. care. They don't know how many days we shot. They don't know how much money we have. They don't know anything. They just watch it. They like it or they hate it. And they'll tell you why. So I really like having that, that opportunity.
0: Wow. How have you grown? Do you think as a leader and as a creator, um, going through the process now of two seasons of querying?
1: That is a good question. I think, um, for both seasons, the more I do any work, to me, the more I learn how the crew is everything. And if you like, you find the right people to work, there are a good fit with you. You're compatible artistically and creatively, and you develop and foster that relationship. You just have a really strong uh, little machine to create good things. So... To me, the more I do this, the more I fully trust in the other people that I hired or that I invite to be part of a project. The more I want, I think in the beginning um, of a project or even the beginning of making short films and films, you, as a filmmaker, I felt like that. I think some filmmakers feel this thing of proving themselves or to be, no, but this is my vision, let's do it my way, or being strict. I think filmmaking suffers a lot from toxic masculinity overall, so there is that persona, you know, of the boss, the mind, or whatever. Mm. In my experiences, the more I just foster a good relationship with the people I work with, where we can fail together, we fail forward, we try, we are honest with each other if we like or don't like, or don't, we're not feeling it or we are we get further together. Mm-hmm. So it's, to me, the more I do it, the more I understand how collaborative it is. So I think that to me is the biggest learning with querying. It, it was so much better to do it with a really supportive crew that have their own voice and having their opinions on everything and having them really actively participate and owning their creative part of it Mm -hmm. and just um, you know if you pick someone to work with you you have to trust them and sure you know have your voice have your nerd because I think that's what stick people together so they know where why they're there yeah but you have to be a good listener
0: I think that's what I learned Touched on it a little bit and I do want to dive in just being a woman filmmaker, being a female filmmaker and identifying as a woman and navigating these sets that there is this masculine energy, right? We all carry feminine and masculine energy with us. The masculine energy has just been kind of at the forefront. Um, How do you navigate kind of, I mean, apart from now, I think this collaborative thing is a very... Uh, important part of of being a woman, and I feel like that a lot of women that I've talked to bring that into their work. But how are you navigating sets as as a woman?
1: I think so. To me, I think in the beginning, I was just very. Uh, Rude, I think, to my male uh, people that I'm working with, just to be like, I am not down for this bullshit. I'm sorry. If you do something weird to me, I'm going to call you out. I don't care if I'm going to get fired. I don't care if this is going to cause drama. I'm not going to take this because I'm here just as you I'm working for 12 hours, the same as you, and we're trying to get the same thing done. So there's no room for that. And I think because the work is so intense, normally on a set, these little microaggressions to me are so much more frustrating because it's like, we don't have time for this. It's not even like, this is, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, We can't be doing this right now. Mm -hmm. So I, at the beginning, came from a place of a lot of uh, resentment I think and I would um it definitely is not the best approach and wasn't the most helpful and I think I have tried to just either ignore the problem and focus on the work and build this resentment towards this this overall imbalance of how a woman is perceived on any position in the set versus a man I think it took me working on the relationships I had so I I had to stop thinking about the overall problem in the world and mm-hmm. all the sets in the world and be like, what can I do on my set? Like, right. what could it happen here that will make me feel better? All the other women in the set feel better and the men. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Tulio Ferreira is the my DP on query and a lot of other things is an amazing creative partner. The first person who read the script really encouraged me to do it. I did not even know if I would have moved forward doing it if it wasn't for his encouragement. And he's a man. Mm-hmm. So I was it was this also this challenging thing of me being like, well, I would just work with women then, problem solved. But yes, you're gonna find men that are really good and really sensitive, good artists that you can partner with. I think I then focused on that relationship and we definitely had humps of being like you, as I don't know if I mentioned in the beginning, but he used to be my teacher back in school. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of layers of the relationship there. So I just think we had a lot of honest conversations and call-outs when needed, but from a little bit more of a place of compassion than anger. <laughs> and um, as possible, <laughs> as much as possible. Yeah. And we I think learn to just earn each other's respect and leave things aside, but it was a very hard work on that specific relationship. So I tried to change relationships with a man on set on case by case. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the best way to go about it. For me, it's, I think it's different when I'm directing or I'm DP because I'm on a kind of leadership position. So Mm -hmm. there is already some sort of respect, I'm queer. I'm a lesbian. I'm not going to date this, guys. I think that's different, too, because it doesn't create that energy of, you know, well, could something happen? It's like, obviously not. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I end up sometimes thinking that I have an easier time with this overall right now or based in positions that I've been. But definitely experienced a lot of being undermined or undermined in how. It's just a simple, you might have been in the room, you said nothing yet, and you're gonna start a meeting with a crew, and just because you're a woman, your vision is just not as strong, or that's mm-hmm. the, how people receive. And that I definitely start solving by working with more women, and when in the room with them, making them feel that their vision is as any other, and it's good, and you know, giving them the, the space to work. So those are the two things that I try to do. I think it's a really big and complex problem and I don't want to oversimplify it. And I think it just takes a lot to resolve. If you are in a position that you can make little changes on or big changes on your set, on your group, with your friend you your partner with, Mm -hmm. you can try that. I think it helps. I think a lot of times, you know, can I curse or no?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay.
1: Some guys are assholes. Mm -hmm. True. Don't work with them anymore. But some of them are just clueless and you kind of have to sit down with them. And if you think that is a worthy work relationship, it's not anyone's job to educate anyone. It's not anyone's job to enlighten anyone. But if you value the work, that's how I think at least. Is this a relationship that I value creatively and that I want to bring forward? If that's the case, then I will put in the work to try to get that into a healthy place for me.
0: I think that's a really good way of saying it too because in saying from, is this a healthy relationship or a healthy set or a healthy experience for me, right? Because it's also putting yourself in the narrative and we are very often, um, are like carrying the world, like you were saying before, or like, I want to make other people feel comfortable, but it is very much, okay, what standards do I uphold for myself and valuing those? And then that's something that we aren't as taught as much because we either talk about it big or we don't, we don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think that it ends up generating more impact because if you can find, if I'm on a set and I'm the director and find a spot where I'm working really comfortably, pretty really confidently, and I feel good and it's a healthy place, all the other women on that side will see that and that changes the vibe mm-hmm. because they understand that there's no you know that those those things that can hold them back when they're going to say something or that weird feeling that's gone because they know that that's not the mentality it's not the energy around them right
0: right and i think what you were saying too about the cluelessness and then and it, it can come in any form right it's not just men i'm sure like lots of people perpetuate certain ideas because they don't you can't blame someone who doesn't know if you don't know you you don't know right and like and that's also a complicated thing to navigate is how do you bring new information into a room or how do you have conversation right and how and how do you show up in that Um, and also knowing you can't control how the other person shows up for that
1: it always ends up being a positive thing to me to just allow the other person to surprise me at least Mm -hmm. one time and maybe I am so sure that this person is going to give me the worst possible shitty answer or response in the world. But just for five minutes, just allow the possibility that they're going to surprise you or try. And also, I think sometimes without being put against the wall or having the conversations, guys won't understand how much they actually value their relationship and how much they want to work with that female director Mm. and it takes them kind of because they feel safe on it they feel less challenged because not a man there's less ego whatever it is so it takes them being at risk of losing their work relationship Mm. that may maybe really make them change and understand like okay uh this is my director and i'm feeling i'm making them feel like shit or i'm making them feel like they're not the work's not coming through their vision is not coming through i'm sucking at my job right now and then they they might sometimes it takes that for them to change it is definitely difficult and it's easier i do have an easier time with a full female set no questions mm. asked i had that opportunity a few times this um last uh project in brazil and it was really easy and i think the narrative along how women work together, this narrative that women are catty and women this and jealous of each other. It's Mm -hmm. really not true. Somebody came up with this, probably a guy. And um, it's not true. It's very positive. Everybody's constantly trying to empower each other and making each other feel good. And I think the more we can bring that feminine energy coming from male or female on film sets, I think the best work we can produce, I think there is a and again, that's up to anybody. People might think differently about that. Obviously, I have no answer to anything, but I think when you are feeling safe and healthy on a space to do creative work, you are going to do your best job. If you're feeling stress, like people are looking what you're doing and questioning if you're good and questioning if you know you are not going to produce your best work and I think that narrative came from old filmmaking and toxic male leaders because that's all there was only male leaders at the time where they had to have this persona of they walk into the room and everybody has to straighten up and all that stuff Mm -hmm. and that's just it's not realistic if you're trying to get as deep as you can on your creative work because it's it doesn't come from that place at least for me and from the most people I work with
0: I do want to talk about the intersection that you're at being female and being queer and Uh, queering and every episode discusses and recognizes all these important stereotypes and microaggressions, and one of the biggest ones being biphobia. So where did you begin to kind of tackle the current realities of representation?
1: I think uh, specifically with queering, I really wanted to, when you're reading the synopsis or thinking about the the big uh, story, it's that most traditional story we see with queer people. It's about coming out. And sometimes in movies, uh, that seems that the only people, the only thing queer people do in their lives is to come out. That's the only wordy moment of becoming a story. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to first have a bisexual come out because I don't think people ever even think about the fact that bisexuality has to, it's the same it's, uh, it's also coming out. Yeah, you're queer and you were going to come out. But I wanted to go deeper into the what happens within the LGBT community. And the, sometimes, the, the, to me, when I came out, finding a queer community was the most welcoming and incredible feeling after years of feeling wrong and feeling off and not having a sense of belonging. And the idea that a bisexual person will not experience that simply because mm. their queerness is not quite right with that group is just really off to me. I obviously replicate this behavior myself earlier mm. on because it's a common thing to do. I think on uh, specifically lesbian women, I think it comes from just people do that to us. So I think to feel powerful would then replicate with another group that we judge to right. be than the minority. Right. And I think those. Deeper, more complex conversations about queerness and, and relationships—it's what I'm interested in when I'm trying to to talk about representation. Because there is a type of representation that is packaged for straight people or for the mainstream audience. It has to be really superficial. It's a come-out story that focuses on the reaction of the straight people, and and then we move on from there. Or mm-hmm. it's a wife that there is a queer and neighbor across the street and she's going to leave the husband. It's about how much the relationship is suffering before. It's just the lens. Mm-hmm. It's kind of always pandering towards this mainstream audience to make their them feel comfortable. And I don't think this do any favors to your audience because they're not really experiencing this world anyway. And all the things that are relatable about it, they don't see because mm-hmm. they are on the nuances of the, the relationships because you can, in in the community of straight women I I feel like in a group of friends a lot of things happen in between people because the person who is single the person who is married the person who has kids and those little nuances are very similar to everybody like the the sense of belonging and non-belonging to a group so I wanted to discuss that and I think overall uh, beyond querying on in any other projects I just try to there is all of the problems in the world exist for a queer person. As much mm-hmm. as a straight person may be different because they're dating a person from a different gender. I think if they're to make content, I think the, the discussion is, oh, the content has to be relatable to everyone to be sellable. Mm-hmm. So let's make it. Uh, let's wash it out. Let's make it just the simplistic view, this two-dimensional view on things. And I completely disagree with it. I think it, the deeper you go, the more personal you go, the more relatable it is to anyone. I've been watching mm-hmm. straight movies my whole life, and I connect with it when the movie's good, mm-hmm. despite <laughs> the fact that it's not necessarily, you know, the the. It, exact replication of my life
0: right right of
1: course it feels great to watch queer movies don't get me wrong i love them and i watch them all the time but i just think that with queering we had a lot of people commenting things like i'm straight and i'm watching this which it's a funny comment but i i'm like this is a good thing because this sure it's a lot about queerness in discussions on all this but it's about a story of a mother and a daughter trying to figure out like we are in the same world but we live very different lives and what's happening. And that is relatable to a lot of people. So I think you should try to place, I try at least to place representation in more real situations in, instead of trying to make the representation the, the appealing factor of the story.
0: One thing that I, what, what I've noticed in LGBTQ plus cinema is that not made by people from the community, but made by primarily straight people, is that there's this oversexualization of gay, lesbian or bi characters, especially bi characters, and that the intimacy of relationships are very often just immediately in sex scenes or kissing scenes. How, how are you navigating that, kind of showing that intimacy? I
1: think uh, it just came naturally because that's not me creating a caricature of something I don't experience, that's my life. So in my life, I have intimate relationships and find love and have all the little things that are part of that. So it wasn't something that I had to put an effort on. It was just mm-hmm. there because it's the, the experience. And I think uh, for whatever reason, when straight people are trying to create queer content, they think that's not there for us that we don't experience mm. the the these things or i think sometimes it's also uh trying to get an appealing scene to get audiences to come especially if you get mm. two mainstream famous straight actresses to make a scene together it's a, it's just a oh yeah everybody's gonna want to see the actress x and extra z to make out that's hot right. let's make that happen right. so and I don't disagree. That could be hard, but that just is really damaging for actual reality. Yeah, and to me, I I came out a movie outed me to myself. I watched something and I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh shit, I'm gay. This is what's happening." So I I think if you watch these movies, you can have a, such a wrong perception of what you think you are and you can send such a wrong message to people so it's mm-hmm. and if we had ton of variety if there was tons and tons of queer movie out there that wouldn't matter that much Because Mm -hmm. you would have a little bit of everything and you would know, oh, this is like the bachelor of queerness. It's kind of- Right, exactly,
0: (laughs) right? It's just like, you know, when you watch like rom-coms versus like that love is portrayed differently, right?
1: But because we have nothing, it's like, it does matter what makes it on the mainstream because that's the only thing that a lot of people have to watch and
0: you do and we talk about this on the podcast all the time like we start emulating what we see right as human beings we do what we know and so the power of of um representation in film tv and media in general is so so strong it's it's so important for creating the world that we want to live in
1: Yes, absolutely. I always, every time, I always, I'm still love watching movies and every time I spend a long time talking about it after just to be like, this is such a powerful tool for shaping people's minds to unlocking, you know, people's minds mm. sometimes and things like that and what you can be exposed. And when it's taken to the, I, I think even rom-coms, they're so damaging. They are so damaging to to the female character and the perception of that character i this whole history of filmmaking men have been telling men have been telling us what a woman is and it's really strange their perception on a woman is very off and we want that and we're like oh i am i expected to be doing this or is this what it means to be a woman and it's definitely very damaging and it's
0: it is a very real um, moment when you, and I, I don't even know if everyone goes through this moment, right? I just I've gone through it because I love film and studied it, and and um, am an actor, and I'm in that world. So now when I look at movies, and this really happened in the last like three years, I would say, um, I like look at who wrote it and who directed it, and I was like, oh, it's all these like middle-aged, generally white men. Yes. And they're writing about my experience as a 16-year-old girl getting my period for the first time. Yes. Right. And and I was like, I don't. I was like, that's how I should feel about these things, or that's how I like. That's how I get seen. And I do. I do adjust the way I carry myself then based on what I I have seen. I'm like, oh, I'm that kind of girl because this movie. I'm like, I would. I would be cast as that, or I would be. So I must be that. And you don't realize that actually the people who are writing that, are it's not your <laughs> perception from the outside onto you, right? And that's not, that's not to say that we can't always write stories about other things, but it's like, what kind of level of investment do you yeah. have in, in telling the story? And
1: also a change in perspective, right? Because they don't have,
0: there's never a challenge.
1: It's the same white middle-aged men telling the story over and over again. So for mm-hmm. example, I think it's really important for women to tell stories about men and for women to create male stories because women will be more likely to show you a sensitive man, a man who has feelings and complexity and humanity Mm -hmm. instead of this really big powerful guy who wants to destroy everything. So um, there is, I think there is, and not just say that all male female groups do that, but when we think about mm-hmm. not right now and not independent film we're thinking about mainstream films and the history of it yeah. and what's making money and what's mainstream, it is a formula mm-hmm. that a lot of the same guy told the same story over and over again and changed mm-hmm. the actress, changed the background, but it's the same thing so the 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 fact that that takes all the space, I think that's the most mm-hmm. problematic part of all because. To me, it's very valuable to see stories from a variety of different perspectives, for sure. So I'm, I'm not the one to say straight people should not make queer movies. I don't mm. believe that. But it is extremely frustrating to see that the movie that makes into everyone's living room, it's made by a straight guy. Because that movie will be a little off. Because that guy doesn't know that experience. Unless he right. is... I, I had an experience that the scene that I, the show that I first saw gay couple was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And uh-huh. the scene of coming out, the, the character comes out to her friend, it's so real. I'm like, this has to be written by a queer person. There is no other way. The writer is Marty Noxon. And mm-hmm. I, she was the South by Southwest actually the year that we both were. Oh, no way. And I went to see her talk. And mm-hmm. as I'm in her talk, someone gets up a queer woman and ask the exact same question. She's like that scene felt so real. Like how? At this point, I know Marty Knox is straight. And then she asks her how, and then she says, "I was raised by two mothers." Wow. You can see how having the the proximity and seeing that real experience would change how a writer can can make that happen. And it's a distinct experience. I know so many people feel the same way about this scene. And it's there somewhere that she could actually perceive the nuance and the reality of it. Mm-hmm. it it's, of course, it's possible. It's just a matter of, because right now there's no space, it is really important who occupies the space. And I think the people that are more likely to get it right should be the people that occupy the space. And for mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. I think that would be queer people to tell queer stories in their, and so on. Male filmmakers can make films about anything they want they can Mm -hmm. pick and
0: choose and that's the reality of the industry so come on Go look for I mean, it's like, what, <laughs> what potential, if, if we're like all living in this world where it's only this, this specific group of people is making films, like, can you just imagine the potential of all the incredible other work exactly. and all the next level, the up-leveling, the breaking of the glass ceiling, getting to whatever is beyond that by including other voices? I think that should be the most exciting part. What is your perspective and uh, experience of the current scope of LGBTQ plus cinema?
1: I think this is the best time ever for LGBTQ cinema ever. There's the most amount of movies. There are so many movies. Uh, the Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that was the... Let's talk about it. Let's
0: talk about it. I mean, I... I love that loved movie. That like movie. Like six times, I think. In addition to the story and um, the incredible actresses and the fact that it was directed by a woman, it is also really yeah, a beautiful film.
1: Yeah, that's a director I love. I don't know if you've seen Tomboy or Water Lilies, but both of these movies, I loved uh, the, the style and the different, like, this highly intense scenes
0: but also always being shot in such a delicate way I'm like this is all right her name is Celine Schiama yeah what I loved about it too where she was like I found out about these female painters that were painting and never were named and then so she just went on this deep dive and just went to like every museum and just started looking at who was painting these portraits right of, of of people of of a certain um uh class back in the day and I thought that was also such an interesting what attracted her to the story yeah, right like or yeah. just that the pursuance of 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 the stories right i think it's like how do we come up with the stories that we want to want to tell and it can be in the littlest of stories and it, it's all in the research and the and the going a little bit further and and going backwards and seeing like what did we miss like what did we pass yeah through? i absolutely love that movie because uh, period films overall are uh,
1: classic way to see how women are always portrayed as oh on that time women were very vapid and very dumb all they care about was skirts and etc 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 and obviously not true because there were writers and artists and just we just don't know they exist and i love how in that movie all their women are very intelligent they're mm-hmm. reading and they all have complexity to them and it's it's a full female cast if i'm not wrong right yeah, yeah. i think yeah yeah and I loved it that she was able to translate, so the moment of right now where people want more of complex, real female characters, she was able to place that in a period queer, queer movie. It's genius and it's amazingly done. So I, I loved it. I thought it was beautifully. The acting is amazing. And... It's really sad. Yeah, but... <laughs> it's also extremely
0: heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, it is a
1: heartbreak, but it's worth. It's worth but having. it's so
0: worth it. So definitely um, go see it. So apart from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, what is kind of your opinion on on the on the scope of cinema right so,
1: now? So that movie to me is a representation of this is the best time of LGBTQ cinema right now because somebody was able to make a period movie of a queer love story that is. Uh, i mean that doesn't really happen people don't get money for those movies to be made i'm sure it was indie and didn't have a lot of budget but it happened so mm-hmm. that's something i think it's a great moment and of course the amount of movies that are made it's very small there is this constant uh, struggle or this constant uh, questioning of will a mainstream audience be interested in queer stuff is queer stuff a niche and i think to me that's a bullshit of course it is interesting queer people watch stray movies their whole lives and they like it and they you know enjoy it it's not um i don't think it's a question but i think for the people that are trying to make money out of this and make decisions it is a big question mark and i also think as soon as they realize that it does make Mm -hmm. money Mm -hmm. that's what changes it's not i think it's a lot less of a political or Uh, homophobic or things like that. To me, I think their question mark is always about money. Mm -hmm. And it's like, are we gonna lose money making a movie about this? And people are testing the waters more and more, right? I know that in November there'll be queer holiday movie with Kristen Stewart and I forgot. Yeah, yeah. Directed by Cleo Duval. So that is news. This is news. Like are you talking to me about a happy holiday movie about two women in love? That's unheard of. So I think yeah. people are testing it out to see if this is going to work, right? Can we make money out of this? And they are already understanding that yes, they can make money of it. I think now the constraints that they have is the same for most mainstream movies. Yes, it works, but all the, the female characters have to be heteronormative looking. Right. It works, but right. all white women. It right. works, but so then uh, the barriers on the, what people think it works with money. It will always be there and they will always create more and more guidelines. But mm-hmm. I do think it's a good moment uh, for, for queer cinematic transition from this backdoor, dark, obscure place Right And become films that everybody watched, that is there to be streamed and people are interested in. And I do think people like my mother or my aunts, they have this fear of queer films from uh, way back in the past, Mm -hmm. that it's going to be pretty much like porn, that it's going to be over-sexualized, it's not going to be a story. So I think that narrative is being slowly disconstructed Mm -hmm. and people are seeing that there is just a valuable story there and that's what the, the movies are about. right there's always going to be something problematic, right? There's always going to be the movie that gets made and everybody's watching is blue is the warmest color. And then there's a lot of weird stuff there. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, it's, I think it's just growing pains. It's unfortunate that we can't resolve that with a magic wand, but it is, uh, there is no better time as now to be doing queer content and to be a, a viewer. I watch every single gay movie or a lesbian movie or a queer movie out there. And mm-hmm. it's great time because there's a lot more. When I was back in my rural town, in Brazil, I had one that I had to watch 600 times. So that part is good, but there's a lot to go still.
0: Yeah, where would you like to see it go? Like, what are things that you're excited about?
1: I think the more uh, filmmakers that have a different perspective and a different mindset and gender roles in going deeper on the nuances of what it means to be queer or what even is sexuality how that exploration works and, and how that affects everything else in your life how patriarchy plays a role into all of this when you think about biphobia for example um i think a lot of it has to do with uh patriarchal stuff it's just the invalidation comes if a man is bisexual he's gay because right it was only validating. What's validating was when he's with another man. If a woman is bisexual, she's straight. It's only validating if it's with the man because the man mm-hmm. is more powerful, even on that imbalance. So, taking deeper looks in complex issues that belong on queer community on gender roles, I think the more filmmakers that are that there to do have this conversation in films, the more that becomes mainstream. Mm-hmm. That's what I would like to see things go. And I think it's a possibility. I think people, if you go back into watching movies from the 90s, even TV shows like Friends yeah. or, or like yeah. rom-coms, they were very superficial and very dummy. And that's kind of what the role of TV kind of play with families and things like that. And I think right now people are really craving for these dark and deeper thought-provoking things in the mainstream like uh, like mind-boggling shows people really like yeah. that right now so i think that's good news and if things steer in this direction uh, we're just gonna open the doors for more filmmakers that want to have
0: difficult topics and try to make them into movies so let's do a quick wrap fire before we end um to do let's start with a book that you would recommend
1: so the latest book that I read, it's what I'm going to recommend. It's Between the World and Me mm-hmm. from Tuna quotes Coates. It's just really beautifully written. And I watch a lot more movies than... Read books because I can always have that resolve very quickly in movies. So my rate for movie watching is way faster than uh, reading. I read slowly. I start and I go well slowly every day. And that was a book that I just devour. is very re- beautifully written, very relevant to the current times too, and everything mm-hmm. that is going on with uh, structural racism and all that. So I would recommend that because it's and he's a really skilled writer. So anyone who's a writer, I think, would just be fascinated by his ability with words and how beautifully he can write really complex issues
0: um a tv show queering <laughs> okay so there's this web series on youtube <laughs>
1: uh one of the latest tv show i really liked let me think oh um feel good on netflix aha good one i haven't it's, watched it yet. yeah it's a quick and it's like an easy watch and i it's clear obviously but i i like that it goes again, goes beyond the queerness and talks about anxieties and things like that on a relationship or mm-hmm. trying to deal with the the beginning of a relationship. It's kind of a good, light, you know, uh, feel good
0: type of show. Yeah. A music piece or a uh, songwriter, song maker. I mm-hmm, think uh, I should have thought about this in advance, but I wanted <laughs> no, to no, go with the Off the top of the head is the perfect. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. I think there is a Brazilian um, artist that I really like called Rubel uh, R U B E L, and I love uh, most of their albums, and the latest one that I really love—it's very nice, mellow Brazilian music, and I yes. like it a lot. Uh, <laughs> let me get the album-specific one. Oh, it's in Portuguese, and so the name of the album is Quando Bate Aquela Saudade. It's which means when I miss you uh it's really nice i'll send you how it's written
0: i'm gonna link everything in the show notes and then finally apart from all the films that we've already talked about a film that you would recommend or that you think the world needs to see right now
1: oh my god this is the hardest question in the world uh let me think about this one okay so a movie that i would recommend for right now and i think the movie that everybody should watch is pariah
0: Pariah. Yeah. Ooh, good one. That is a good one. Um, what's next for you? What's the next plan? I mean, it's a weird question to ask in COVID times. Yes. <laughs> what are you working on? Where Where would you like to be next?
1: I so I've been less productive than I was hoping for during COVID, especially for writing. I'm trying with querying. I would love to transition query into a feature film, and the original plan I think could have legs as a feature film and um, even experiencing festivals and all that. I think if I had been there with a feature, we would Mm. have potentially have locked different deals with it or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there is something on the books, but with COVID it's just really hard to think and think logistically about production. I do also want to kind of wrap queering up. That's a difficult part Mm. of Episodical. I, as a writer, as a filmmaker, I want to wrap this up and move to other stories. I would love to shoot something in brazil next um if you can imagine that there's a deficiency of queer content here
0: queer content in portuguese it's like
1: you can count on your hands how many movies exist
0: thank you so so much for coming on in her lens i really really appreciate it
1: thank you so much for inviting me i think this is so refreshing and so needed i think you're doing something amazing
0: Thank you for listening to In Her Lens. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to hit that subscribe button and leave a review. The Two Seasons are streaming on YouTube, and you can follow more of Letitia's work on Vimeo, linked in the episode notes. Stay tuned for the next episode and any updates or sneak peeks on the podcast's Instagram at in Her Lens Podcast. See you next time.